one of the advantages, and it's going to sound weird to say it this this way, but one of the advantages of radio drama, audio drama, throughout its entire history has been the fact that no one ever gets rich doing it. So that means that people do it out of love, and they do it out of um, compulsion and kind of artistic urgency. Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Eric Klein. And I'm Jennifer Waits. And today we're talking about audio fiction and radio drama with guest Neil Verma, who's assistant professor of sound studies and radio television film at Northwestern University and author of the book, Theater of the Mind, Imagination, Aesthetics, and American Radio Drama. I'm personally really enthralled with radio drama and radio drama for the ears, radio drama for the eyes. I've, I've attended some radio drama live theater performances, so... I'm really excited that we got to talk to Neil Verma today. Yeah, it's not just your grandparents' uh, listening medium, as it turns out, right? Radio, and and what's fun, what Neil Verma shares with us today on the program is like, um, people have thought about that for the entire history of making uh, drama for your ears. People in the 40s thought that they were reinventing their grandparents' uh, listening medium. And so there's been a long history of audio fiction um, in the world, and we have a great guest today to unpack just a little bit of that history, and also what's going on uh, this very day. What what podcast came out yesterday that everyone who loves audio fiction uh, should have the opportunity to listen to? Yeah, he Neil Verma has his finger on the pulse of the current state of of audio drama, as well as a really amazing appreciation for the history of radio theater. We're joined on the line by Neil Verma, assistant professor of sound studies in radio, television, and film, and author of the book Theater of the Mind, Imagination, Aesthetics, and the American Radio Drama. Welcome, Neil. Thanks. Yeah, so happy to have you on. And so many places to start. We're talking about audio fiction. We're talking about radio drama. What What is your preferred description of this kind of sound art? Well, um, I think these days most people tend to use the word words audio drama. For a couple of years, I would teach classes in radio drama, and nobody took them. But then I changed the cla- the name to audio drama, and a bunch of people took them, yeah. um, even though I didn't change the syllabus that much. Uh, well, I you know uh, in in this field, a lot of people get hung up a lot on terminology, and and I think that there's a place for that kind of conversation. So, for example, um, these days there's a, a big kind of um, distinction between what some people call audio fiction and what some people call audio drama. And the fact that there's a distinction is a kind of generative, um, a generative feature yeah. of Wait, the discussion. Is it, you know? I'm just going to guess as a, as someone who loves the radio, but doesn't um, study radio in academic, in an academic setting is one like traditional, like radio drama, like, you know, a family gathered around the giant box, listening to the shadow you know, uh, and the other one is like the new f- art form. Um, yeah, I, I mean, they're they're both they both think of themselves as as contemporary art forms. They like both audio drama and um, audio fiction think of themselves in opposition to uh, traditional radio drama. So what you kind of described, but they are also different from one another in the sense that most people who make audio fiction tend to come from uh, the world of uh, audio documentary. Okay. Uh, whereas some people, but most people who come from the world of audio drama tend to come from uh, the world of of writing uh, right. and ah, writing creative fiction and things like that. So yeah. it's they're they kind of come from different directions and they have different kind of sensibilities. Yeah, about themselves. I can guess why yeah. because 
one is basically uh you know theater like the traditional <laughs> the the way that people used to buy tickets and go to a room and see per- plays performed but theater for the radio and the other one um those authors uh live their whole lives processing massive amounts of tape and editing it right and you know the this distinction isn't new exactly you know um if you read textbooks about radio drama from the 20s 30s 40s um the writers are often trying to understand what they do in relation to other arts. Uh, so, for example, um, there's a, a very famous radio historian named Eric Barnu who who used to work for CBS uh, in um, in editing and continuity writing, and he wrote a book in the uh, 1940s, went through several editions on uh, on radio writing. And one of the things that he discovered, or he felt was a discovery of his generation, is that a lot of people came into radio drama thinking it would be like writing theater. Um, a lot of them came from Broadway. Their understanding was uh, informed in many ways by the American stage. And then they discovered through a series of experiments that writing radio drama was actually a lot more like writing literature. Uh, and hmm. so they be, kind of began their careers imagining the audience like you imagine an audience in a room, like a kind of you know public of, of human beings together. Uh, and they ended it their careers thinking about it more like an individual reading a book alone in a room. Um, and so that changes the way you imagine your task as a as a communicator and as an artist. The the audience for radio theater or audio drama or audio theater is something that I was thinking a lot about as we were preparing for our discussion today. And and even when we did a live version of the Radio Survivor podcast, I had trouble wrapping my head around, am I speaking to the audience in front of me or the audience over the air? Right. So I'm curious how that works. And I don't know how much of the time when people are recording audio theater, how much of the time they have an audience in front of them. Um, but could you talk a little bit about that, how how people grapple with that imagined audience? Sure. Uh, so uh, it, it, for this, the purposes of this question, it, I think it would be useful to think about a distinction between the traditional era of live radio and, and the contemporary period, which in some ways begins in the 1950s, in which the most audio drama that is produced is recorded prior to being aired. Um, so before that, it's not the case that that it was never recorded. Recording arts have always been a part of um, of radio drama, but for a lot of people who made it, they thought of what they did as not, not not one audience that's there in the here and now, but one audience that's there in the here and now, and then a second audience that's extended beyond them that also experiences what they do at the same time. Um, so, yeah. um, you know, uh, I often, for, for example, I often teach radio plays by Norman Corwin, and uh, Norman Corwin was, was the best known audio dramatist uh, of the 1940s. Uh, he was probably one of two or three radio writers who was a household name. Um, And the reason why he was so admired was because a lot of his poetry and a lot of his writing was really quite difficult to deliver in real time. Um, And so when you listen to it, it's like watching a high wire act where you're kind of anticipating mistakes. Um, And if you listen to it now, a lot of it kind of falls flat because we're used to thinking of it as a recording art where there's always a chance of a second take. But that was never the case for that audience. So back in the 30s, I guess what I'm saying is that um, the distinction between the audience that's there in front of you and the audience that's out there in the world um, is, is less than... Um, than it is now, where uh, you 
are recording something for a particular audience, you're reacting to them in real time, you have a dialectical relationship with the people who are sitting in front of you if you're on a stage. But uh, you really have no control over the circumstances and reactions of the people who are going to listen to it after you put the recording out in the world. Um, you don't know how what devices they're going to be listening over. You don't know what mood they're going to be in. You don't know what time it is. You don't know what their yeah. reactions are. So I, a lot of those things are, are you know, there's a, a kind of ontological difference there. I was just thinking about that when getting ready for this conversation that, like, back in the day when radio drama would be something that happened akin to what primetime television <laughs> was before the internet came along uh, to change television forever. But the, the family gathers around the radio at, at 8 o'clock after dinner and listens to the show. And now it's like, are, is your audience listening on headphones while they're jogging? Are they lying in bed uh, before they go to sleep listening on headphones? Are they in their car driving and they're at work? Like you never, right. there's no way to know uh, who's listening to your audio drama when it's when it's time shifted and available on the internet. That's really true, and it, you know, um, I, I I was once talking to a a, a well known producer uh, in uh, at the BBC, and we were talking about this shift from terrestrial radio, predominantly terrestrial radio, predominantly um, digitally um, platformed radio, in one way or another. Uh, what sometimes called expanded radio, mm -hmm. um, and and um, and he said that you know one of the the curious things is that he was expecting. So this is someone who's been in the, the industry for like twenty thirty years. He was expecting all of a sudden for radio to become more complex, that it would have these really big, um, expansive soundscapes, that it would use the stereo spread a lot, like the kind of stuff that I like as a, as a listener. Mm -hmm. um, but what actually happened was that it got a lot narrower, um, huh. that um, it focused a lot really on specific individuated voices. Um, the, um, the threshold of the, the microphone was really very narrow. Um, and we tended to, to spend a lot of time with people alone with their voices rather than in big spaces that were kind of sonically examining. Yeah. And I think this the reason is because of the fact that we can no longer have any expectation of what the reception site will be like. Um, you know, it'll probably be an earbud, but we don't really know. Uh, we don't know what people are going to listen to in, uh, on 10 years versus, you know, tomorrow. Um, so uh, because of that, it's people have tended to... Um, simplify their approach rather than complicated, even though we live in this golden age of, of recording equipment when it's cheaper and easier to create complex uh, soundscapes than it has ever been. And do you think most people are hearing audio drama in a digital form today? I'm, I'm curious if you know how much of it appears on the terrestrial dial. Well, most of the, as, as has been the case for the last 10 or 15 years, most of the interesting terrestrial uh, work either happens kind of on a local level in an individual way, or at these kind of big institutions like the BBC that can afford to, you know, make big splashy performances of Neil Gaiman adaptations directed by Dirk Maggs and all kinds of famous people couldn't get involved. Um, so there was, you know, the on, on terrestrial air, basically what you find is this really, you know, kind of two-tiered uh, uh, world, one where there are these kind of, you know, rather large, uh, celebrated, event-based um, broadcasts, and then others where it's kind of local, uh, locally produced, um, often experimental um, works or uh, nostalgia pieces, things like that. But what's been interesting is that the the, the middle space, um, in terms of production scale and, and ambition, has been hugely filled out in, really in the digital realm. Um, so um, we, we, 
we we don't really live in a golden if you want to draw the distinction this way we don't really live in a golden age of radio drama but we do live in a golden age of audio drama mostly produced for the online space and to be distributed on um on online platforms. Uh, so that's where most of the energy is in the field in terms of where people are working. But of course, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of intermingling between those two worlds. Yeah. We're on the line with Neil Verma, assistant professor of sound studies and radio television film at Northwestern University. And we're talking about um, the realm of audio fiction, radio drama, everything that could go into your ears that uh, that is made up. And it's it's such an interesting time because here we are. Uh, as Jennifer had just asked and, and, and Neil had just answered, there's not a lot of new work of this form on the terrestrial radio. There's a huge amount going on just for podcasts, but that leads me to think about, um, and this is like, I don't know, deeply personal, but also I think has a wider, <laughs> I think it makes sense to ask this question for everybody, even though it's kind of just for me. What happens with radio podcasts, audio drama, is like I never know where to start. And it seems right. very difficult to um, to get into anything. And uh, I also tend to just judge something in one minute. And I think if it was on the radio and I stumbled on it or if it was on my favorite station and I knew that on Sunday nights at 10 p.m. I could look forward to something, right. I, I might be more patient. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's like a lot of things in, in the kind of digital world is that it it becomes such a giant field that it's really hard to find your way through. And actually, there's one one thing about that that I really like a lot, which is the fact that most people hear about audio dramas um, kind of as anecdotes or as little recommendations from friends. Um, so it's not, not something that has been like effectively algorithmically fed to you, like every other kind of medium you probably consume. Right. Um, and partly that has to do with the fact that um, we're, we're not really good at uh, uh, inventorying audio in the same way we are at inventorying images or texts. So if you like one kind of text, uh, often you'll get uh, deluged with recommendations for similar kinds of texts, um, partly because they're able to analyze them really well. But really, a lot of people get turned on to audio drama like just um, because a friend recommends something to right. them. Um, but I could tell you a few of the the places where some of your listeners might look if they're interested. I think that's a, yeah, that'd be great. A good direction um, to head in now. Yeah. So, uh, like I said, there's there's this big middle space where probably the the most um, expensive and um, uh, and you know highly produced uh, audio drama is still in in really in organs like the like the BBC, um, and then there's this like this long scale all the way down. So maybe I'll I'll kind of talk about some of the bigger ones first, and then we can um, talk about other ways to access it. So um, uh, the BBC has a, a great archive, uh, as probably a lot of your listeners know. Its its work is only available for limited times, especially for those of you in North America. So uh, you usually have 30 days to listen to kind of experimental um, audio pieces from them, but it's always worth uh, paying attention to, especially around the holidays, which was when they tend to program a lot of their work. Um, oh, and Audible. Neil, could, could you tell yeah. me what you mean by experimental in that context? Uh, so, for example, um, uh, they've been doing a lot of interesting things with um, uh, binaural audio. Uh, do you guys know what binaural audio is? Tell us. Uh, so, um, uh, most of the things you listen to are, are, are 
recorded in stereo, and the way stereo works is it, it uses at least two sources of, uh, of sound, uh, and then there is uh, an overlap between those two sources uh, that creates what we call a stereo image, um, where you, you get the sense of looking at a kind of landscape with your ears, right? So things happen on the left, things happen on the right. Um, that's how th things sound um, in stereo, but it's not actually how you hear. The way you hear is you have one ear on, or if, if you you know have hear, uh, hearing, uh, typical hearing, uh, you have hearing on one ear of your head and then the other ear of your head, and then there's this big thing called your skull in between those two hearing sources mm. uh, that produces a shadow, um, a kind of shadow between two hearing sources. And so if you record things in binaural, you often create a substance in between the two uh the two microphones that cre simulates that head shadow. Ah. And so when you listen to something in, in, in binaural sound, um, it tends to sound a lot more realistic because it's not this, you know, clear stereo field. Instead, it has this, um, this, uh, you know, this, this shadow that emulates the way you actually listen to things in space. And so, um, so, uh, for example, the BBC did a really great series of, uh, uh, JG Ballard, um, uh, uh, adaptations based on this principle um, that you would have to listen to in headphones. Uh, the, was, in order would to those get the be full science effect. fiction works by J.G. Ballard? Yeah, 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 yeah. I forget, I forget the, t the titles, but there's a th th there's a tradition of doing that 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 spans this whole this whole area. But so that's something that you, you listen to on terrestrial radio. Uh, Audible uh, has a, a few. Um, uh, well, they've invested in things. Uh, recent years, they've invested a lot in franchises. So there'll be audio dramas that are based on the X-Files franchise right. or on the Alien franchise, um, which are often made by, uh, you know, career professionals. They get, they hire really great voice actors. And so the production value of those is really high. Um, and then if you go to um, kind of big names, big name networks in, uh, um, in um, uh, the podcasting world. So, for example, places like Gimlet, um, they have uh, a couple of high-profile podcasts. One of the recent ones was called uh, Homecoming, which was made into a TV series recently. Um, and uh, they likewise spend a lot of money and a lot of uh, time getting talent. Um, uh, and so a lot of networks that are that size have, have one or two audio dramas that go along with their broader slate of, uh, of podcast offerings. There's some uh, podcast networks that are specifically devoted to audio dramas. So a lot of people these days got into it through the podcast uh, Welcome to Night Vale which yep. I think a lot of your listeners will know. Um, and so the Night Vale people have produced, I think, four or five other podcasts that are similar in style to that one. Um, and so they've kind of formed a network around it. Uh, the same is true for uh, Pacific Northwest Stories, which did a, a series called The Black Tapes uh, and is still doing it, but also does uh, two or three others. Uh, so those are kind of indie-style producers. Um, I think if, if people are interested in, in this field, it's also worth uh, focusing on the careers of individual dramatists. So... Um, I real I follow the work, for example, of um, of a producer named Misha Stanton, um, who does uh, some uh, really interesting podcasts. One's called Ars Paradoxica about um, time travel. Uh, another one's called The Far Meridian about um, about a moving lighthouse that I really that I really enjoy. Um, and then uh, another audio producer who a lot of people who are interested in this field first got interested in uh, through. Uh, 
Iska's named Jonathan Mitchell. He produces a podcast called The Truth. I think Jonathan is probably the most important working uh, audio dramatist these days. Like mm. he's one of those people who uh, 30, 40 years from now, people will look back upon his kind of body of work. Um, and then there's all kinds of really interesting experiments. Uh, Stitcher produced uh, a, a series based on the Wolverine character from Marvel um, that was produced by a, a really great um producer named Brendan Baker, who you might know from Love and Radio. Uh, and and he did that last year. It's called Wolverine the Long Night. I, I don't, I'm not really a superhero person, so I wasn't so much into that, but the, the way it was designed was really brilliant. And he did some really amazing things with mixing. Yeah. Um, and then, um, and then I think my, the most exciting piece for me last year was Caitlin Prest's The Shadows. Uh, Caitlin Prest is a producer who's best known for doing uh, a kind of feminist, uh, sex positive, um, a podcast called uh, called The Heart uh, it used to be called Audio Smut when it was at CKUT, uh, and then um, and then she's she's done this really interesting thing for CBC podcasts called The Shadows, which kind of chronicles a, a love affair. Pretty simple formula, but the the way she puts it together is really exciting and um, experimental. So and she's she'd be someone who's working more in the area of what I'd think of as kind of audio fiction rather than audio drama. So those are some points of entry that I think some of your listeners yeah. might might follow up on if they're interested. A lot of good places to start. Neil Verma. I know. Um, we'll, we'll have links to all of those recommendations in the show notes today for radiosurvivor.com. But I wonder. I think maybe it's appropriate now to have you. Um, explain why you are such a fan of of shadows uh who, who tell us more about this project um i just I, I thought it was so funny because the only um when i'm when i'm in a pinch and called upon to name a radio drama from the golden age of radio i think of the shadow and that's all i can think about and now here's a here's a podcast that's available and it's called uh, the shadows they're not related though no, I think, I mean, I think she's kind of has a, a bit of an, she's using a bit of a, Caitlin Press is using it, it kind of impishly a little bit, but, um, well, uh, The Shadow isn't a bad show to listen to. Um, the, the Shadow is a really complex show, actually, and, um, you know, when I, when I listened to, when I was doing the project on uh, classical radio drama, I listened to basically everything, and, um, and uh, the thing about The Shadow that people don't, appreciate very well is that uh, it's extremely um, spatially organized. Um, so it's it's not a very long show. Um, it, it's not um, uh, in terms of how much time is actually spent um, in dramatic space, but uh, they do an incredibly detailed job of telling you exactly where people are, where they're moving, how they're moving, how they stand in relation to one another. And they often do this with purely acoustic means. So I'll give you an example. Are, I'm I sorry. Are you the, talking about the the old the shadow or the new? Oh yeah. Okay. So we're we're talking about and and for people who don't know, and I might not even know myself. It's a it's a detective story. A bit a bit of a, um, a bit of like a cop drama. If I might use like a genre of TV. Yeah. Is that accurate? Yeah. Because I've never listened yeah, to it. I, I just I just know the one cliched, uh, booming voice that introduces the whole thing. The Shadow Knows, right. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so it's about uh, a character named Lamont Cranston, who is a, a wealthy kind of young man about town. Um, and he has spent some time in the mysterious East. <laughs> yeah. And uh, in the mysterious East, he picked up the power of hypnotism. Uh, and so what he's able to do, his superpower, is he can hypnotize people so they can't see him. 
Uh, and uh, uh-huh. this is important, actually, because he, he doesn't actually have a superpower in, in the sense of changing something about reality. He just tricks people into not being able to see him. Uh, and, uh, and, and so in the show, which was normally a half-hour show, um, he would uncover some plot or um, find some... Uh, there's often a lot of cults. He would ferret out cults. Um, uh, or he would find some sort of, um, you know, mob operator out using these powers and turn them over to the police. So right. it's and, a bit of a superhero program. And can you tell us, Neil Verma, a little bit just about the, like, I, you know, here we are in the future. We, we did not live through this moment where The Shadow was the show to listen to. What, like, what kind of impact did it have? How long was it on the air? Did every family listen to it? Uh, no, I mean, it was, so oh, let's see, it was on the air for 20 years, 15, 20 years, something like that. Okay. It was, and it that's was very a, popular, that's a really, but really long time. Well, it was, of... it was certainly in reruns too, because yeah. I remember listening to The Shadow when I was a kid on the radio. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I think actually it's kind of, it's tale in the cultural imaginary is, 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 is not as, um, significant as it was at the time. So mm-hmm. for example, you know, it's nothing like a show like Amos and Andy or something like that. Amos and Andy was appointment listening for most people. Um, and you know, this is like a, a racist minstrel show uh, from the uh, late 20s, early 30s, uh, which is by far and away, um, you know, the the most listened to broadcast, the most listened to dramatic broadcast of its era. Um, and so, you know, obviously, that's not the kind of thing that people um thankfully listen to so much anymore um but uh but that would be like a, if you're looking for a show that like had this like profound deep impact mm. uh, you know the, so some people who compare it to birth of a nation you know another another racist uh text from the period uh, as in, in in the sense of like making a medium wow. right um that um that it 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 proved that there was a big market for this kind of of thing um, the Shadow was, you know, this is before what we think of as market segmentation. So today we would think of it as a children's show, but at the time, you know, adults would listen to it as well. And, and, um, uh, and you know, the performances were really great. It was really gripping. Um, they're, they're able to, uh, you know, the, a, a lot of the medium was evolved in, in, in shows like this. You know, the, the person who, who produced The Shadow, um, you know, went on to uh, produce uh, shows like The March of Time, which was one of the first uh, news uh, dramatization broadcasts before we had real news. We had news dramatizations. Um, and a lot of the people who worked on it, like Orson Welles, would innovate some of the most important things that were done on radio in the late 1930s. So it, even shows like that were kind of um, gestation areas for creative work. Hmm. And now that we we got off on a tangent, a necessary tangent, talking about the radio drama of um, is it fair? Is is the golden age of radio okay? I've been saying it, but I've made that up uh, when we started. Uh, people don't. Uh, it's a bit of an old fashioned terms, but the other old fashioned term t- people tend to use is old time radio, which <laughs> is I I find it interesting because even the term old time sounds like an old time thing to say. Right. right. Um, but. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I use classical radio era. I sometimes use the golden age. Um, it I doesn't really bother me exactly. I mean, one of the funny things about radio is it's constantly being revived. You know, I, I wrote for my book, I wrote mostly about stuff from the 30s to the 50s. And in the late 30s, when, you know, uh, poets like Archibald MacLeish and um, and uh, Stephen Vincent Benet and kind of like, you know, fancy writers got involved in radio, they thought that what they were doing was a revival. 
You know, they thought that they were taking this form that was really invented 15, 20 years ago and reviving it for the first time. And hmm. you can you can go all through the history of radio and find people in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, the 90s today who are writing very earnest, thoughtful things about how they're reviving this dead form. It's like this perpetually dead thing that's sure. perpetually being reanimated. That's, that's what we thought we were doing when we started today's podcast. We're talking about the revival of audio drama. You're, this is the voice of Neil Verma. My name is Eric Klein. We're on the line also with host of Radio Survivor, Jennifer Waits, and we're talking about audio fiction and radio drama. And uh, your book, Neil Verma, is Theater of the Mind, Imagination, Aesthetics, and American Radio Drama. Um, and we're talking, we've been talking now for the last like 10 minutes or so about uh, The Shadow, all as a way to introduce the the shadows the shadows which is a podcast or is it is it fair to call it a podcast that's how you're going to find it today but did the the shadows which was produced by the cbc right a radio network um never aired on the radio Uh, i don't know that i don't know whether or not that's true that it was produced for cbc podcasts which is their kind of branded podcasting out i listened i listened to the first episode and it is um it is definitely like made for the internet because it is uh, sex positive and filled with adult language that's true a lot of stuff that's unlikely to air i mean one of the exciting things actually about about audio drama these days is that it it really does create a lot of stuff that is unlikely to air (laughs) Mm -hmm. in other circumstances um and i think um pressed has been has been one of the people who's been pushing that forward and well, so um, you brought up the shadows because you thought it was um, well notable, like especially notable, especially for an audience of people maybe who who haven't deeply thought about radio drama or audio fiction, or at least an audience of people that haven't heard about that show. So why tell yeah. us about why it's something that you are uh, excited to talk about? Um, well, I think also because uh, uh, let me think so. If, I, if I'm thinking of like contemporary landmarks over the last 10, 15 years of like radio of audio dramas that 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 got a lot of people excited about the medium. So one of them would definitely be Night Vale. I yeah. think a lot of people, um, they listened to Night Vale and they thought it was funny and that it spoke to a lot of their interests. If you were, if you watched the X-Files and Twin Peaks when you were, you know, um, when you were a teenager and now you're all grown up, you would probably like this podcast. You felt like it kind of created a community around itself. Um, so that was, that was, I think, one landmark. Another one was Limetown, uh, which was a kind of uh, fiction version of an investigation uh, podcast that came out around the same time as Serial uh, in 20, what was that, 2014? And uh, and so a lot of, and it also emulated a lot of the forums. And so there was this whole kind of mini genre of the lone uh, lone woman investigator trying to find her way through some kind of mystery. And that was the fiction version of it. So that was kind of a landmark, got a lot of people interested. And then a couple of years ago, I think Homecoming was another big one which brought, you know, really exciting uh, sound design and um, naturalistic acting became really important. Um, I think it also proved that you could use Hollywood stars, you know, Oscar Isaac was in it, Catherine Keener, uh, and create really interesting things. And I think that The Shadows is similar to those in the sense that it could alter the way people make audio dramas in the near future, but it's doing it from a totally different point of view. I mean, Prest isn't really a, a Hollywood person or someone who's like a hustling to get a TV contract like she's really an artist and so um, I think a lot of the things she does in in this piece with um, uh, with Phoebe Wang is 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 to um, 
you know, experiment with how to how to mic things differently yeah. um, and how to edit things differently. And she spent a year making it. With one of the principal actors, she spent 70 hours uh, recording with him. I mean, that's really wow. unheard of in a lot of other contexts. And so, right. so how does she um, how does she mic things differently? I know that the aesthetics that's something you're really an expert in is you know yeah. how to yeah. understand the aesthetics. And we're talking of these. about we're talking about Caitlin Prest. Yeah. Um, so uh, 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 most of your listeners probably know like uh, the the Zoom series of handheld recorders. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, I think uh, so. She they had a, a couple of Zoom um, H ones, which are the the kind of hundred dollar model little ones. with a little ones. Yeah, that have um, little X Y configuration um, uh, mics at the top. Uh, so uh, for two, you know, she just got hired by the CBC. They have limitless resources when it comes to recording equipment, uh, at least when it comes to uh, to kind of high-end stuff. But she decided to record most of the scenes uh, in the homes and apartments and bedrooms of the principal characters themselves yeah. just using these two H1s, which would have been a huge headache in, term, in the editing space, but, um, but nevertheless resulted in a really kind of naturalistic delivery. Uh, so a couple of things those do is that they, they have a pretty shallow um, pickup around them, but they're really good at picking up kind of breathing, the sounds of uh, the mouth, the sounds of the nose, uh, the kinds of elements that tend to be excluded from what we think of as, you know, quote unquote, professional recording. Ah. Um, and so that so it has a very bodily feel to it, in part because of the, the mics that she chose for that. And also the fact that she chose one for the pr- the principal character, who's also named Caitlin Prest, and then another one for her her love interest, whose name is Charlie. Uh, and so um, she's able to change perspective using these two. So, for example, if you listen to the first episode, it's mostly mic'd from the, the what I call the audio position of of Caitlin Prest, the character. So we we hear things the way she hears things in the world of the fiction. Um, and then the second uh, episode shows many of the same scenes, but instead of listening to her microphone we're listening to his microphone and so um we're we've created a kind of a a different kind of um sonic experience of the same worlds uh now you don't have to mic it that way you know (laughs) um and in a lot of places where um where you know you rely too much on on technology um you can kind of lose some of the textural features that some of these opportunities afford. So I feel like she got an interesting reaction from her actors. I also feel like she gave it a different kind of sonic texture than other people might have employed. So, you know, it's a really specific kind of narrative. Uh, and and I don't know that everyone could necessarily do yeah, it. And this is, but the, I think those this is are, the radio show um, and podcast, The Shadows by Caitlin Press. That's right. Yeah, and so uh, and so those are some aesthetic features that I think are they just sound really different from a lot of stuff that's out there, and yeah. so I hope they inspire other people to make similar work. Because most because most radio drama is uh, is created by actors sitting down, speaking directly into a microphone, and oftentimes reading, possibly reading their lines, and so here's that's true. Here's something different. Yeah, and you know, I, I don't want to say this is a total innovation. You know, like field recording has been a part of of radio drama since the '30s. Sure. Um, you know, since people were using wire recorders, and um, and and it's always been a part of the tradition. And and in fact, like you know, I I've been writing something recently about um, about different creators who use field recording as a as an essential element of their technique. And so John Dryden, for example, at the BBC is a really famous version of this. Um, uh, if, if, if people are interested in his work, they should listen to a, a piece of his called uh, uh, Pandemic. Um, and, uh, and they 
they deliberately choose these kind of environments, partly because they want to get more authentic um, backdrops for their action, but actually in many ways because they want to get better performances out of the act, their actors. They yeah. think that you know standing in front of a microphone can kill a lot of techniques. Now I don't I don't think that's necessarily true all the time, but and this has always been a kind of partial strategy. But I think it's you know we like I mentioned before we live in this golden age of portable recording technology, and it's a shame not to use it. Neil Verma is assistant professor in radio, television, and film at the Northwestern School of Communication and our guest on Radio Survivor. Radio Survivor is supported by Spinatron. Spinatron's web-based system lets non-commercial radio stations publish music playlists on their website. Entry and editing is optimized so that busy DJs can edit and manage their own playlists. Spinatron also connects to major automation systems. Learn more at spinatron.com. That's S-P-I-N-I. T-R-O-N.com. Now back to our interview with Neil Verma on the world of audio fiction, past and present. My name is Eric Klein, and with me is my co-host, Jennifer Waits. When when you're describing the aesthetics and the production, uh, I'm also thinking about live radio drama that's recorded in front of an audience on stage. And a few years ago, I was able to visit Unshackled, which is a it's a live radio drama. It's recorded live in front of an audience in Chicago. Unshackled and then, is bonkers. <laughs> I, want, I just want to say that. I've, I found my way to Unshackled on the internet in, uh, in like the early aughts, and I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a Christian radio drama. It's not an ongoing serial. It's each week, it's a different story of A morality salvation. tale, yeah. A story of salvation based on real life stories that have been submitted to um, this um, Pacific uh, a church, like a church organization. Or, it's or a church ministry. organization. Yeah. It's a mission. That's mm-hmm. a mission. The one, um, the one that I heard in the early aughts was, uh, was especially crazy because it was the story of a, of a young man who, who was led astray by uh, heavy metal and his enjoyment of playing heavy metal albums and being in a heavy metal band. But the actor playing the young man was definitely a middle-aged man. And oh yeah, well it's it truly delightful to hear it's them fascinating. try to use 90s slang in the early aughts in a mm-hmm. radio drama that sounded like it was produced in the 50s. Really well, yeah, it's and been, so you saw it you saw it performed it, it's live been, on stage. Yeah, they've been doing it since 1950. They record <laughs> every week in Chicago um in front of an audience. They have a Foley artist on stage. They have live music accompaniment and I I wrote an article about it for Radio World and and talked to a number of people involved with the production, but the engineer talked about the challenges that they they like performing in front of a live audience, but that also means that there are some engineering challenges that they have to deal with later. So, right. you know, they have to do some editing if there you know are random things that happen during the performance, um, and also it's a room that it's a large room that's very difficult to control the sound in. So. You know how how that comes across later to an audience listening on their radio or on their computer versus something that was recorded in a studio is interesting to think about, and also how it feels as an actor to be performing that in front of a microphone, but also in front of an audience. Um, and it, yeah, I just wanted to see if you wanted to have if you wanted to just comment on that if that sparks any ideas in your head about production and aesthetics. Yeah. Neil Verma. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I um, 
So I, I, I've also been following this kind of interesting tradition of doing audio drama on stage. So we have another outfit here in Chicago called Wildclaw Theater, and every year they do a series called Death Scribe, where they have a competition of people sending in horror radio plays. And then what they do is they produce them um, on stage, but they're not um, acted out exactly. They're just you know a bunch of stationary microphones and a series of people uh, speaking into them. And then there's a Foley artist who kind of creates the work. Um, and, and it really brings home to me the idea that you know, I, I've always, you know, uh, in, in, as in all humanistic disciplines, people fight a lot over terminology um, and they fight a lot over, you know, whether this counts as radio drama or that counts as radio drama, this counts as audio drama, audio fiction. Um, and I really feel like um, there are really very few circumstances in which those arguments are, can be useful. Right. If you're making a historical distinction in the career of one person or another, then that's a really useful distinction. But in, in a lot of ordinary people's lives, you know, what is the difference between an audio book and an audio fiction to, and an audio drama to me is makes a big difference. But for a lot of people, it really doesn't. And it's, I think it's what I want to listen to today. Or, That's or right. Don't and want to listen to. You. Yeah, and 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 that 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 disinterest in form or disif- disinterest in the 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 way that the the form gets articulated is itself interesting. Like that's also really important and something about the experience of it that you have to account for. And I've always liked the fact that no one ever has ever been able to successfully define this genre. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that a lot of people create good work. At because they can't decide the genre, and you know, uh, the thing about the about the audience is really important too. You know, um, uh, the audiences in classical radio are some of the most interesting things to listen to. So if you listen to like you know hundreds and hundreds of hours of the Lux Radio Theater, as I have, um, at a certain point, you know, the the, the performance is less interesting than actually the audience because we're huh. you know for our generation we're so used to laugh tracks and prompted reactions right. that in some ways this is before all that. Um, so uh, I'll give you an example. There's um there's a there's an infamous uh, radio play from 1937 with Don Amici and Mae West uh, about <laughs> the Garden of Eden. So you can just imagine knowing Mae West how that would have gone, uh, and uh, and it's just about the interplay between you know Adam and Eve, and Eve is is you know uh, everything she says is a double entendre that has to do with sex, right? Yeah. But the reason why you you think that isn't just because it's Mae West, but because of the reactions of the audience. The mm. audience is like hooting and hollering the whole time, right. and they're like, oh my God, I can't believe she said that. you know. And and that is what generated the controversy around the, around the work. And actually, what ended up happening is that Mae West was banned for radio for 10 years or something like that. Um, of course, nothing happened to Don Amici. Surprise, surprise. But, uh, but uh, you know, the, the way that the, the audience's reactions become part of the text. Yeah. Wow. That's the voice of Neil Verma, Assistant Professor of Sound Studies in Radio, Television, Film at Northwestern University. And we're talking on Radio Survivor today about audio fiction and radio drama. Well, Neil Verma, I would love for you for our, you know, for your for your final statement today on Radio Survivor. Can you uh, tell our audience um, why do you think that radio drama and audio fiction is? Um, I'm going to assume because based on what I want to be true, that it's actually. Uh, it's about to get a whole lot better. And I wonder if you want to agree or disagree. Hmm. Uh, well, I'll tell you why. Because uh, Paul Reismandel and I had the opportunity to go to a podcast festival in Seattle last year. And yeah. we sort of had our minds blown because we live in our little radio bubbles, as we all do. And Paul and I had no idea that there was such a huge, young, uh, diverse 
a queer and feminist fan base for audio fiction in podcasting. It just was, mm-hmm. that was the day we found out. And that was when I found out about, um, I saw pr- uh, people that you have mentioned earlier in today's episode uh, were, were on stage in front of an audience's hundreds of adoring fans. It was sort of mind blowing. And so yeah. that made me think that, wow, like, and, and what was amazing was all of those fans themselves had projects that they were either working on today or dreaming of launching soon. And it seemed like yeah. there really was about to be an explosion of new of new work in this field yeah. that, that the day before that I had no idea even existed. Well, um, one of the advantages, and it's going to sound weird to say it this, this way, but one of the advantages of radio drama, audio drama, throughout its entire history has been the fact that no one ever gets rich doing it. Um, you know, no, to think about people who got famous doing it, you have to think about names like Orson Welles or things like that. You know, there's maybe three or four people in the whole history of the medium who've really made a big name for themselves. And so that means that people do it out of love and they do it out of, um, compulsion and kind of artistic urgency. Um, one of the things that's been characteristic of the last five or 10 years is that people make it in order to build communities, um, and that really hasn't been true necessarily for, you know, uh, a lot of other historical cases. You know, like if you look at in, in the 60s, the most interesting stuff was being done uh, probably, um, I don't know, by probably in, in, by KPFA in, uh, in, uh, in Berkeley by people like Eric Bowersfeld, who were really kind of literary people. The voice um, of It's a Trap, by the way. That's right. Yeah. Um, Star Wars uh, fans. Or or. Or, uh, or people like um, um, Tom Lopez, who has a commune in upstate New York, where he makes the CBS network stuff. Or, and then in the in the in the the, the you know eighties and nineties, you think of people like Yuri Rosovsky, who made these really great you know um, stuff for NPR. Um, and, but all those people, in spite of the fact that they all had like great great impulses and were really interesting artists, none of them were able to kind of create the scale of communities um, that really some small independent. Um, you know, barely produced work has been able to do in the last five, 10 years. And so if if there's one thing to be excited about radio, um, uh, audio drama now more than ever, it's that it's able to kind of connect people um, that, you know, fans become creators and creators become fans uh, in a way that that really just hasn't been true historically throughout its throughout its uh, uh, its kind of long legacy. And is that part of what has drawn you to study this area of audio? Um, well, when I was in second grade, uh, I had a a teacher who liked to read to us in the afternoon. And one of the books she read to us was uh, a piece called, by Mordecai Richter called, uh, which still has the best title of pretty much any book I've ever read. It's called Jacob Tutu Meets the Hooded Fang. Wow. Uh, And I remember having this really evocative experience of listening to her read. Um, And I guess when I got to grad school, I, I kind of stumbled across this you know world of, of historical audio that was just becoming available, thanks in part because of the, the advent of the MP3, uh, where all of a sudden for the first time you could study it in quantity. It's like this kind of you know buried hidden treasure um, from the, the, the golden age of analog that has been buried and was just suddenly unearthed by the golden age of digital. Um, and and so it, it became possible to study this stuff in like a rigorous um, and expansive way that really wouldn't have just, it, it, you know, you couldn't have, my book couldn't have been written five years before. It doesn't mean that I'm, I'm you know, uh, 
that I'm particularly great or a genius or anything. It's just that it became technologically possible to study it in this way. Uh, and so I think in some ways it unlocked for me uh, some of that feeling I had, um, you know, listening, imagining, creating these kind of big interior worlds in my head and then trying to understand how people did it for 20, 30 years at a national scale, simultaneously, all around the country. Um, it became this really compelling, obsessive idea that I felt like I could fall into uh, for several years. And I guess I just never got out. That's inspiring. <laughs> well, Neil Verma, your book is Theater of the Mind, Imagination, Aesthetics, and American Radio Drama. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today on Radio Survivor. It's been, it's been really great. Thanks so much for having me. We just heard from Neil Verma, Assistant Professor of Sound Studies in Radio, Television, Film, and Associate Director of the Master's in Sound Arts and Industries program at Northwestern University. You know, radio drama, audio fiction, it really does, I mean, we've talked about it before, but I definitely think, I mean, one of the interesting things about it, Jennifer, that we didn't talk about with Neil, but I think is relevant to why we haven't talked about it on Radio Survivor is like, I do think about Radio Survivor as being more often than not, like, what is on the radio in the daytime more than the nighttime? We're, we're more of a news and public affairs show. I mean, right. I'm, I'm pretty sure that if you, uh, if you looked at all of the places where Radio Survivor is currently airing on, on affiliate stations, we're a daytime show. Uh, and I audio drama and radio fiction, if it airs on the radio, is definitely like a nighttime experience. That's true. Yeah. And I mean, and I was thinking, I mean, it, it's, it's not on the radio very often in the first place. So that's something that, that I, that I think about is when people think about what is on the radio, I'm guessing that most people are thinking about music and talk and they're not thinking about the more experimental things like yeah. audio drama. So it, it exists in this really, kind of obscure place where there's not much of it and if and if it is on the air it's in those late night yeah. hours and yet if we talk about uh, breakout hit podcasts uh, i think audio fiction is really definitely like the new genre for i mean especially because of what's happened recently where many uh tiny stars in the audio fiction landscape have been um, tapped on the shoulder by large by large television networks online or otherwise to make their shows for the television screen, which yeah, um, it's a, which changes it's, everything. It's such an interesting moment, and then I think that also kind of opens opens people's ears to audio theater, audio drama of the past too. Like, wait, what? You know, this was being done in the early days of radio too, and. And I would think that that would lead to a lot of exploration in, in the same way that the vast archive of music that we have online allows people to really explore things from many different eras. Yeah. And yet I really, we didn't talk about this too much with Neil. And I really, I think I'm very excited about the, the idea of having Neil Verma on the, the Radio Survivor program again, because one of the things that we didn't talk about, but... It's how I think about radio drama. It's how I've always thought about it. Was that this was something that people did because television hadn't been invented yet, because the movies weren't as accessible, and that as soon as we had TV, that was why, that was why we don't need this thing anymore. 
but right. that's that that's not the whole story. That's just part of the story. But that's how I grew up. I never listened to audio fiction growing up, uh, partly because the internet didn't exist and partly because it wasn't even on the radio. But if it was on the radio, it sounded old. It sounded like it was for old people, not for me. Oh, I loved it. I mean, I, I fell asleep at night listening to The Shadow when I was a kid. That's great. And, and there's something very alluring about it. And, and one of my favorite TV shows had a radio drama theme to it where it was Ellery Queen. And, and there was some aspect of that show where where you saw people recording a radio drama, <laughs> like in a studio, uh-huh. like not in front of an audience, but in a studio. Um, so I think and that in was the a same TV way, show. yeah, in the same way that um, I love Neil's story about listening to his teacher in elementary school read a story to the class and how that that really uh, touched him in a certain way. It, it sparked his imagination, how when you're hearing a story, you're imagining all these other things. And that's that's part of what's going on when you're listening to a radio drama late at night in bed. And something that something that I'm fascinated about are the sound effects and and you know, back then you you didn't have all the technology, so a lot of sound yeah. effects were created live by a Foley artist who had their bag of tricks. Uh, and I've also run across soundtrack records from the early days where right. you could have, you know, an entire collection of of records that are different types of airplanes and, you know, every conceivable thing. And now all of that can be found, you know, quite easily online, I would imagine. So I also wonder how, you know, what is the production like today sure. of these audio and, and how much of how much of the time are these sound effects being created in this more homespun way where, you know, people have, you know, random things that they're clicking yeah. together. Well, we didn't talk about it, but uh, chances are if American audiences are listening to any audio fiction at all, it was probably the the the, the hit of the several decades. It might be sunsetting, but um, we didn't talk at all about, about uh, Prairie Home Companion. Oh, yeah. Which really might be the the window into popular audio fiction and they they definitely did all of their work with that old-timey foley artist and made it part of the joke made it part of the the show yeah these days you know editing audio on your computer uh is a superpower and you can you can put lots of layers and make lots of decisions in post-production that that weren't available to people there's so much happening behind the scenes that most of us are unaware of and and I, I don't know if you want to talk about it now, but you wrote something recently about your philosophy of editing, which I think has, you know, some connections with what we talked about on this episode with the production of, of audio theater. Yeah, well, it, I did. I wrote about my philosophy of editing for audio for radiosurvivor.com. And uh, I got a lot of nice responses. And one of the things that I didn't write about on in that article, um, because mostly... I was writing uh, from the perspective of someone editing, you know, one interview, one news and public affairs interview, or one podcast interview, or multiple interviews. But in fact, uh, some of what I wrote about those ideas were developed because I had a project in uh, I'm going to say 2016 for all of 2016 that I was producing a regular radio drama uh, for a podcast audience, and I think I think I was forced to think about like what goes in and what goes out. And why am I making these decisions? Just as much for that project, for fiction, uh, 
as I would have for nonfiction. Yeah, I mean, it must be interesting for you to hear about things like podcasts like The Shadows, where there's a decision being made to capture things like, you know, mouth noises and body noises that might be considered mistakes and other sorts of scenarios. So it's interesting, like having that whole philosophy of what is this podcast going to sound like? Yeah, I mean, where you put the microphone um, is a choice that every radio producer makes every day. And usually uh, they've stopped making the choice. They put the microphone right in front of their face and they use the microphone that they always use because it came with their radio studio or it's because it's the one they they chose when they when they built their podcasting studio. But yeah, with audio fiction, there's a lot more places you can think about putting a microphone. And I, and I love how all of this connects with sound studies, which we've talked about on on the show before uh, with people like Jenny Stover from Sounding Out, you know, that, that they're, I love that academics are thinking about all of these things now and how do we receive sound and what are the politics of sound and not everything on the radio or on, you know, your podcast dial, not everything is produced or sounds the same way. And that, that creates this amazing tapestry of sound. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for reaching out to Neil Verma. I really had a, a good time getting into the sound studies universe of radio fiction and radio drama, and I look forward to doing it again soon. So do I. Thanks. Yeah. Radio Survivor is a listener-supported and reader-supported enterprise. You can find out more at radiosurvivor.com support. Links to every single thing that we talked about, or at least I'll do my best, uh, are going to be up on the show notes for today at radiosurvivor.com. And uh, we are a podcast as well. If you're hearing this on the radio, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere where you do that subscribing and listening to podcasts. Check us out, Radio Survivor. Uh, RadioSurvivor.com is also a blog and a news site for radio lovers. I, as mentioned, recently wrote about my philosophy of audio editing. You can check it out. Jennifer, you just wrote about a Christmas marathon. Oh, yeah. I wrote about John Solomon, this DJ at WPRB, the Princeton radio station at Princeton University. Mm-hmm. And um, every Christmas, he's on the air for a marathon broadcast 24 hours or longer in recent years. So that's really I funny. talked to him about that. <laughs> that's really funny. I have a lot of thoughts about that idea of, of spending, spending the holidays uh, in front of a radio microphone. Well, uh, Jennifer Waits, uh, on behalf of uh, Paul Reese-Mendel and myself, uh, uh, thank you to everybody for listening to Radio Survivor today.